Welcome to the final episode of the first series of Bring Back V10s brought to you by The Race. We've bolted an 11th episode onto our planned first run of 10 because we've had so many questions from you about the V10 era of F1 and we want to answer as many of them as possible. I'm Glenn Freeman and for our final episode, for now at least, because we will be back with a second series later in the year, we're rolling out the big guns. Mark Hughes is back and I'm delighted to welcome Gary Anderson to the show to make his Bring Back V10's debut. Better late than never, Gary, and we couldn't go for a whole series about F1 from 1989 to 2005 without having you join us at some point. Given the significance this era had on your career, is this a time in F1 you look back on fondly? Yes, as I mean, you know, the, the cars then were, you're probably looking at a lot simpler than what they are currently. Um, they were they were real racing cars, you know, they made lots of noise and, and they produced lots of horsepower, uh, lots of RPM. You know, we're talking uh, the V10 era was... 20,000 RPM and, and probably knocking 1,000 horsepower here and there. So really good, really good period of time. Um, I think everybody enjoyed that period, really, because the technology came on hugely, but it still was a, a, a time whenever, you know, there were nuts and bolts, I suppose you might call it. They weren't too sophisticated, but they were like real thoroughbred racing cars. We'll count that as our traditional opening question for this week and crack straight on with the questions. And Mark, I'll come to you with the first one, because we had a couple of questions about the early years of Kimi Raikkonen at McLaren, uh, an era you will remember very well. So Alex Griffin asks, just how good was McLaren spec Kimi Raikkonen? And Tarun Luthra says, please do an episode about Kimi in 2005. And he cites an article uh, that you wrote uh, saying about how Kimi lost his speed after switching to Bridgestone. It'd be great to know about that. But the main thing is, Kimi was mega fast in 05 with McLaren, but not the same later on. So what are your memories of what I think a lot of us now consider peak Kimi Raikkonen at McLaren? Yeah, Kimi was fantastic in the McLaren years. And I don't believe that um, Ferrari uh, saw him at his best. Even in his championship year of 2007, I don't think he consistently reached the same heights of his McLaren years, where he was devastatingly fast and, and no teammate could live with him. And he had this beautifully pure driving style, hugely faster at the fast corners, needed nowhere near the input of a Montoya or a Massa, and had a really great feel for using the weight transfer of the car into the slow corners. Um, by which I mean he could overlap his braking and cornering to load up the outside front tyre and get the rotation onto the car early, well before the apex. Just the minimum of steering lock. And that way the car would be pointed very early at the apex and he'd be able to get on the power hard and early. And if the tyre will take it, it's the fastest way to drive. And the tyre or Michelins that Kimi enjoyed in his McLaren years were perfect for this. And combine this with what was the fastest car in 2005, and he, he might have won just about every race, but the engine was unreliable. Um, 2006 McLaren was just not as well conceived. It wasn't a very good car, but Raikkonen himself was still performing at a very high level, and Montoya couldn't get anywhere near him. <clears throat> but then came the the end of the tyre war, and from 2007 onwards, we got old-spec control tyres from Bridgestone. These weren't the tyre war Bridgestones that had been so great in 2006. These were based on the old technology. And the fronts just didn't allow you to aggressively overlap the braking and cornering in the same way. And Kimi refused to change his style. He argued that it was the right style and the way it always been fast, and it was the tyres and the car that were wrong, which was technically true, but... <laughs> These were the tyres that everyone had, so you needed to adapt. 
Um, essentially, the end of the tyre war took away one of the keys to Kimi's raw speed. He was still fantastic through the quick corners. And Ferrari one showed me telemetry comparison between him and Massa through the fast sweeps of Silverstone, and it was just night and day. But in the slow corners, Massa was much more high energy, more prepared to wrestle with the steering wheel to get the car to go where he wanted it to go. And Kimi never really wanted to do that. And it was why he was no faster than Massa and slower than Alonso and Vettel subsequently. And with the control tyres, I don't believe that would have been the case. No, I think, you know, everything you say there, Mark's right. I think the one thing Kimi really needed was a, a car combination, car-tyre combination where the front end really worked. He, he, he drove the cars. All the sensitivity comes into the, in from, the, from the steering wheel to, to, uh, to Kimi. And he had that with, the, as you say, the, the, the tyre competition Bridgestones. Um, but he never had that with the, the Michelins or the, the production Bridgestones as such. But I'd, I'd say that during those, that period, he never lost any of his speed. It was just the fact the car didn't suit him. And I relate him very much to Max Verstappen. You know, he's just one of those drivers that was always on it. He never knew how to not be on it, to be honest. And uh, I think in a driver, you can't ask for anything more. But when he had the car that had a good front end, be it a combination of the tyres, as I say, then he had the speed for sure. The next one's for you, Gary. Uh, ben Harris, who's been a fan of the show from, from week one. Ben gets in touch every week talking about the episode that we've released. So we had to include one of his questions. And he said, uh, Gary, if the more unrestricted sort of driver aids era of 1993 had been allowed to continue beyond into 94 and beyond, what would have been the effects on the teams and the sport and on who was winning and on safety? Now, you were in the thick of this with Jordan at the time. You know, the big teams were running away with the amount of technology they were piling on the cars. From what you recall, where do you think F1 was heading if that hadn't have been nipped in the bud when it was? Well, yes, it would have been a lovely engineering challenge, obviously. We'd all, we'd all appreciated that. Um, we had a, an active front suspension on our Jordans, um, but it basically just was a right height change control. It happened automatically. It also could be done by the driver. So basically, when you wanted traction, you could jack the front right height up. Um, or if you wanted more front end, downforce-wise, you could lower the front end. But it was a very limited package. Um, but during that period, we did spec out what we would classify as... Um, our active car, which, I mean, basically everything was active. It even had DAS on it, so that would have been quite interesting. But, you know, you, you wanted to adjust the, the toe-in, uh, the camber, relative, all four wheels separately, basically. Um, and obviously that combined with traction control, you just had a fully mobile four-wheel car. Every, every wheel would be separate. And the driver was just going to be putting in the input. So the car would decide what, what it needed to do at that speed at that point in time if the driver kept on you know putting in more steering lock it, and the car speed was was stable it would the, the car would know the car was understeering a bit more so it would do it, whatever was best to get rid of that understeer and we had it all specced up as such and we're working with uh, lucas actually on the electronics for it because we sort of partnered with them a little bit um but to be honest the end result is i'm pretty glad it it, it didn't sort of carry on through there because it would have got to the point where obviously it would have made the cars faster, but they would be more, much, much more complicated. And reliability at that point in time, it was too early, I suppose you might call it. You know, the cars weren't reliable enough and we weren't on top of the electronics well enough, especially for a small team that we were. You know, that it would have been the, the invitation for the big guys to really beaten us. But as a team and as a person, I would have loved the challenge to have, uh, to have tried to put it together. But I don't think it would have been right for Formula 1 at that point in time. 
Yeah, I think obviously the lap times would have been slashed dramatically and the cars would have just kept getting faster and faster and the, the new simulation technologies that were coming would have allowed that aerodynamic advantage to be taken of the fact that the active allowed you that full control of the, the aero platform that Gary was talking about. And I think, um, but I think the same teams would have been doing the winning. Williams had the advantage of the head start on active, but the others were catching up. The, the 93 McLaren and Benetton were very sophisticated cars, just didn't have the Williams's Renault horsepower. In terms of the racing, on the one hand, you'd have drastically reduced braking distances, which is bad for racing, but on the other, you'd have a less aerodynamically sensitive car as the control of the ride height could probably give you plenty of underbody downforce, which is less sensitive to the wake of the car in front. Safety, yeah, as Gary touched upon, the engineering was probably not as good as it subsequently became. Um, and already, probably by 93, the cars were becoming a bit too fast for the level of passive safety that they had at the time with the big exposed cockpit sides. Nowhere near the crash test strength of later cars. So, yeah, it's probably about time to knock it on the head. Just, you know, basically to sum it up, I think you could you could say you could have loaded each four, each of the four tyres ideally for that tyre, for the situation. The slip angle of that tyre was, was going through. You could generate the slip angle properly in it. The aerodynamic platform, as you say, Mark, you know, you could have optimised that at all points. And that, and that really was where active suspension, suspension, you know, as far as vertical control was, was concerned, that's really where that came in. You know, you could optimise the aerodynamic platform. And, and the minute the car hit the straight, you just drop the rear ride height and you've suddenly got a massive drag reduction. So it's, it was something you could play tunes on. But as I say, it's, uh, it might have just been a little bit too early to got too sophisticated for a small team. Uh, I think nowadays you could do it, to be honest. Would it be better for racing? I think still the, the team with a massive amount of money, the massive amount of engineers, simulation tools, they'll still come out and talk because they will do a better job than any small team. So I don't think it would be a grid closer by any means. Probably a good thing to try and delay the rapid expansion of F1 teams and their technology behind the scenes as well. But we've got another question here, Gary, from The Happy Tie, which is one that you can answer based on your Jordan experience because uh, they're asking about memories of Stefano Modena. Obviously looked good with Tyrrell and put in some nice giant killing performances in 91, but then uh, quickly went sour at Jordan. And the happy tie asks, was Stefano an enigma or simply overrated? I think just, you know, when everything was right for him, he was really, really very good. Uh, it was a bad year. 92 was a, was a tough year for us. We were just basically trying to survive. We got the Yamaha engine. Um, the car was was less than good, let's say. It had a few decent showings, but it, it um, you know, the, Yam the, the Yamaha engine was, was very heavy, and I classified it as a boot anchor now and again. Um, it was very unreliable. I mean, it, it would seize on the stands, just warming it up. Um, you never got two of them the same. Uh, so it was a really tough year, and we had a, we, a, a mechanical sequential gearbox in the car, which initially had some problems. It was selecting two gears through basically through flexing, depending upon how the driver changed the gears, if he sort of was on the lever and preloading the gear before going to the next one, he could actually select two gears at the same time. So it was just something inside the gearbox was flexing, and we couldn't simulate it. We couldn't make it happen, but the driver could. So if he took it easy on the gear changes, you never had a problem. But if he was trying to do the gear change very quickly, then which is what the gear change was for, then it would, uh, it would go into two gears and break one of the gears. So we had our little problems. But the interesting thing about Stefano, he, he, um, 
he was very superstitious. The 27th of the month wasn't a good day for him. So if ever a 27th came on, on a race day, it was pretty t difficult. But I remember whenever he, um, he didn't qualify at Monza, and um, I went back to the hotel after we'd, we'd sort of got the cars ready and stuff, um, and Stefano was in the reception, and I said to him, oh, you know, do you want to have a drink? And uh, he said, yeah. So we sat down, and we had a, I mean, he had, he had a, a beer, I think, to be honest. Um, and he, he said to me, he said, why do you hate me? And I said, I don't, I don't hate you, Stefano. And he, um, he started going on. He said, oh, I, I thought all year you've hated me. You didn't like me. You're always Maurizio Guzman's friend. And I said, yeah, but I, I engineer Maurizio's car, you know. It's, he said, yeah, but I need to be loved. I need to be loved. Anyway, we got very, very drunk um, and that night, both of us. And uh, he, he never thought I hated him anymore after that. And he was a, it, it was nearly a different person, to be honest. You could see a difference in him. But uh, part of the, you know, part of him was that that sort of superstition or whatever. You know, he had to have everything right. The gloves getting the car on the, on the right side, all that sort of stuff. He, you know, put on his left glove first, whatever it was, and his right glove second. If he did it the wrong way around, he was that was it. He was knackered. So um, if he could have dropped that, I think his true talent in the car was was very good. But it, all that other stuff just seemed to outweigh him. Yeah, he was he was uh, one of those drivers who looked sensational on the way up and I, I recall James Hunt was a big advocate saying he was a world champion and waiting but it didn't really translate in F1 he was F3000 champion in 87 in his first full season but in a fully budgeted car and he was pressed pretty hard by Roberto Marino's shoestring effort engineered by Gary um, <laughs> he made his F1 debut at the end of that year with Brabham it was a bit of a disappointment but only because he wasn't really prepared for the physical demands of F1 similar to when Senna first came um, he came fully in F1 in 88 with a back market team Europe run so it's difficult to assess the ultimate level of a driver in an uncompetitive car it was a back of the grid bit of kit really and all he can do is compare to the teammate. He was generally a bit quicker than Oscar Lorari. Um, so there was still a belief that this perceived me magical mega talent was in there. Then he got a chance with Brabham, 89-90. This wasn't the Bernie on Brabham team. It was, a, it was beginning a gentle slide to oblivion, but it was still okay in that first year. And he finished third at Monaco, 89. But he generally wasn't as impressive as Martin Brundle that year. So that gave the first sort of definitive reading on him. He was... He's, um, you know, he did some good good drives in the Tyrrell in 91, but not, not consistently so. And again, you, you didn't have that ultimate measure in because I had the uh, Kazuki Nakajima and the um, um, Satoru Nakajima in the, the, the other car. Um, so, uh, yeah, he got a bit of a reputation as a fair weather driver. Didn't really show the intensity and grit. Um, so it's uh, fascinating to hear Gary's insights into his personality as well. So Because it all sort of fits, doesn't it? Yeah, well, you know, we never, or I never went into that sort of stuff too much. So I never went in too deep to it. I just saw what I saw. And I'd say he could have, he could have so easily got rid of 50% of his problems, you know, just overnight by just thinking slightly differently or having, maybe having somebody around him to, to sort of stop this stuff encroaching upon his mind. But as I say, on a given day, um, I mean, I remember going down to Pembury with him in the Formula One car for a two-day test with Yamaha engines. And we took um, a car that had an engine in it from Mexico, which was, you know, as far as Yamaha were concerned, it was going to blow up the first time he started it up with all this, you know, alt you know air. Um, because it was built specially for Mexico, uh, with you know the altitude, um, it, well, it lasted for two days, 
Um, the, for, the only engine I ever had that lasted for two days, and Modena drove his heart out around, around there, and you know, and really, really good, very good test and all that sort of stuff. But it wasn't the twenty seventh of the month, and it was, uh, you know, it was a day he thought he liked me, or with, he thought I liked him. So it's always difficult because you know, whenever you go, whenever we went testing, I was the one that usually engineered the car, um, and as I say, at a race meeting, it was Mauricio Guzman that I engineered. So. That's where he got his feeling that I didn't like him because whenever we worked together, we worked together very well. And then whenever we didn't, obviously, um, he thought I was dumping him and going to somebody else. So, uh, yeah, talent-wise, I think he had something. But unfortunately, you have to have it every day whenever you're in Formula 1. Yeah, Too many races on the 27th then, and maybe you should have taken him to the pub a little bit earlier, Gary. <laughs> I, I learned my lesson uh, from that and did that with the next drivers. <laughs> Made sure there was... Made sure there was no time lost. <laughs> More F1 testing at Pembury as well. I think that's what we need. Uh, but Mark, the next question uh, is another one about Jordan, but I'll throw it to you first before we get Gary's sort of insight. Jonathan Patty wants to know more about some of the exciting F1 rookie debuts in the early 90s. The examples he gives us are Jean Alesi and Eddie Irvine because they both battled Senna uh, early, early on. Obviously, Alesi was a few races into his career with it when they had the fight at Phoenix, but Irvine pretty much ended up literally in a fight with Senna after his debut at Suzuka. Was that uh, perhaps the most interesting way Eddie could make his mark in F1, upsetting, you know, the star driver of the time on his debut? Yeah, I guess so, but he's impressed on the track as well. I mean, he made a, he made a fantastic debut, but um, I think it was um, very good for him that it was at Suzuka because he'd been racing there for years. He knew all the tricks of the place. And um, it was a pretty good car as well, pretty good Jordan. Um, his subsequent career showed he was a good driver, good level driver, capable of winning races. Um, but it wasn't the superstar his debut suggested, but he's a very smart operator, very good driver. Um, unless he probably made an even bigger uh, impact on his Grand Prix debut at uh, France 89 in the Tyrrell. He ran as high as second, I recall, finished fourth. And then he, about half a season after that, yeah, the first race of 1990 at Phoenix, he's fighting Senna for the lead, ultimately finished second. But actually, although the, the Tyrrell was only a little team by then, it had at that time probably the most aerodynamically advanced car on the grid. This was the original high-nose F1 car that Jean-Claude Miggio, he, he pursued a, a fresh line of thinking, or he'd taken Adrian Newey's thinking on the Leighton House even further, let's put it that way. And the, the, that Tyrrell, the 018, had a big advantage over the cars of even the big teams at the time. And aerodynamically, it was essentially um, the car that Miggio and Harvey Postlewaite had conceived as a Ferrari, but which John Bernard had stopped quite rightly, as it was a parallel car program in the same team. And that was an untenable situation, um, which uh, John only found out about partway through the season. So um, Harvey and John Claude left Ferrari but with their ideas and what they'd found in the Ferrari wind tunnel still at the front of their minds. So when they joined Tyrrell, this thing just burst out the box as a fantastically sophisticated car. Um, but in reality, much of the research had been paid for by Ferrari. So the only thing the Tyrrell lacked really was a powerful factory engine. And we only had Nakajima in the other car to give any perspective. So yeah, unless he was a good driver, he had fantastic car control, incredible in the wet. Um, but he, he wasn't really, as an overall package in the same league as the top guys, Senna, Prost, Mansell, we saw this directly when Alessi and Prost were um, teamed together at Ferrari in 91 and Prost comfortably outperformed him. It, 
it was suggested also on Alessi's qualifying advantage over Nakajima only being about half that that Senna used to enjoy when they were at Lotus. So yeah, they're both um, top drivers, but ultimately not the full full on superstars um, that their debuts may, may have suggested. So what about that Irvine debut, Gary? How impressed were you when he jumped straight in the Jordan as a Japanese, an experienced Japanese racer at that point? He'd been racing over there a while. And were you anywhere near the incident when he got thumped by Senna? Um, well, I'll answer the last bit first. No, I wasn't in the little office when he got thumped by Senna. Obviously, I heard about it pretty quickly. But uh, yeah, it'd been interesting to be in there. Might have, might have had to join in somewhere along the line, which would be a, a bit sad. But um, the far, as far as the car was concerned, our 1993, the 1993 car, um, we, we, it was the time the, the Nara Track um, cars came in and we built, um, you know, we built a car sort of shorter wheelbase aspect ratio sort of changed a bit. Um, but basically it was very hard in the rear tires. So we struggled all year long um, with the, the rear tires overheating and whatever. And the weekend, sort of before the, the race at Estoril, we decided that we needed to do something about it. So we actually lengthened the wheelbase by a good old six inches, or 15 centimetres, as it's called these days, with a big spacer between the engine and the gearbox, and just got the weight a bit further forward, lengthened the wheelbase so the car wasn't so nervous. Um, and we did that over a weekend, actually. You know, changed the bodywork, changed the floor, changed the engine cover, and made this big machining. So when we went to Suzuka, we had a, a car that, was a bit better, and obviously Eddie knew the circuit very, very well. So suddenly the car was a bit better to drive, a bit better on its tyres, all that sort of stuff. So Eddie was competitive. I mean, you know, he, he um, well, he qualified eighth, which is pretty good. Rubens was uh, was twelfth. Um, so we felt we felt on a bit of a high. Suddenly we were going to maybe knock on a few points here, and, and then in the race, obviously he was running well. Uh, he did a very good first corner. He knew that through the first two corners, if you get on the outside there and you have a little bit of luck on your side and nobody t-bones you, you can make up a lot of places because everybody dives for the inside, and the road's completely open over there. So he did the right things and got uh, I think he got up to fifth or something in the first lap. Um, but coming up the end of the race, uh, you know, he had been lapped by Senna a little bit earlier. Senna was leading the race, and uh, it was one of those sort of things where he came on the radio and he, he said, you know, Senna's slowing down, do I overtake him? And uh, we told him, yeah, you do, because if you can get in front of him and for some reason he, he has a problem or whatever, you know, uh, you pick up a position because you'll you'll be doing the fat last lap of the race. And, uh, and you know... If you let him be ahead of you now, it means that even if he breaks down or something happens to him, you're a lap down anyway, so you'd get no benefit. So that's why he did it. He overtook just to get onto the lead lap, making sure that he could pick up any anything from anybody else that uh, that in that top uh, four that failed. So he, you know, he he did the right thing, but obviously Senna didn't uh, didn't really see it that way because uh, you know he ended up sixth. But at the end of the day, you know, he come in, he was fresh, you know just a fresh sort of pair of hands. He was, could drive very, very well, Eddie. So, you know, you have to pat him on the back for that. He never, he never came into Formula One as a, as a new boy, really, a new, new learning curve. He had raced at Suzuka in the, in the Super Formula out there. Uh, so, you know, those cars were bloody quick and they had good tyres. You know, so you had to commit to qualifying laps and he had all that experience. You know, that is probably, or was at that time at least, the closest to Formula One. All the, all the good guys, you know, friends and all those guys were all fighting out there merrily. So a lot of them had good Suzuka experience and, and Eddie was one of those top guys. Yeah, and Irvine, of course, memorably in 1997 pulled some Suzuka tricks as well to help Michael Schumacher in his fight with Jacques Villeneuve. Now, the next question is, 
technical related and it's related to something that ended up on one of your cars, Gary, because Mark Hindle wants to know about the short-lived X-Wing aero devices, which did appear on the Jordan 198 for a little while before they got outlawed, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, it was, again, regulations force you to go around and around the car and try and find these little loopholes where there's, you know, an area where you can maybe do something. And, and the X-Wings and, you know, wings mounted up on the tops of the engine covers, uh, wings mounted over the top of the cockpit, you know, all of that stuff is just there pops up a little window there where suddenly you think, oh, I could do that. You know, nowadays, it's, it's much tighter, but you can see the, the T-wing um, on, the, on the back of the engine covers. That's the sort of area. That's just there's one little area there where it's open to, to put something in there, and you, and you try to put in a, a downforce-producing device. Um, everything's about getting the, the downforce out of the cars because the tyre only responds to load, and the more load you can get on it, as long as it's consistent, uh, the better it will be. And the, the X-Wings are an example of that. They, you know, they produced downforce. They were well up out of the way of everything else. They weren't bothered by turbulence. So, you know, they were very independent. So just another few kilograms of load onto that black bit of rubber that holds you on the ground. And as I say, it was, it was a really interesting to go around and around the cars and try and find these little windows of opportunity and exploit them to the maximum. So that was a constant thing that you were looking for. And, you know, as I say, the X-Wings was just one of those products. They were a bit ungainly, though, weren't they, Mark? Do you think they did us a favour by banning them quite quickly once they all sprouted up in early 98? Yeah, I think it's probably the only thing that's been banned purely on the grounds of aesthetics. I know we tweaked the um, the nose regs after 2014 because we had those ugly step noses, but that wasn't really a... It was just a tweak. It wasn't an outright ban. I can't think of another instance where something's been banned just because it looked ugly. Um, so, yeah, it's quite quite uh, radical, that, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the, the rear wing uh, that we had with the side wings further forward as well, you know, uh, on the outside of the end plate, there was a, a couple of wings because you could... There was a, another little window left of opportunity there. Um, they were they were sort of in the same line. They were pretty ugly as well, to be honest, because there was sort of protrusions sticking out of nowhere. But the X-Wings, uh, I mean, just the fact that where they were, right in the middle of the car, did make them look pretty bad, I have to say. But, um, you know, it's one of those sort of things where if you can, if you draw the FIA's attention to something like that, nothing will happen, and then somebody else will do it. So you've got to get on and do it to prove that it's it can be done. And and then, you know, unfortunately, or fortunately for everybody, visually, it got it got uh, banned. But as I say, they could be there, and you could probably have tidied them up through time. But the window of opportunity for them was very small. So I don't think you could have made it look nice and had them. I don't think that could have happened. No, I think it's probably a good thing that they got rid of them. Uh, the next one, Mark, is from Rachel Fleming. And Rachel asks... Was David Coulthard's first season at Red Bull an Indian summer for the driver, or had he just joined a team that was at his level at the time? So this was in 2005 when DC left McLaren after a very long stint and uh, seemed to get a new lease of life when he first stepped into Red Bull. Um, I think his 2005 season at Red Bull is about right uh, for the good level he was at. Um, even in his twilight years, you know, it, it was a... A car that had been conceived as a Jaguar, but that team was beginning to find its feet technically. Um, it wasn't a bad car. He wasn't a bad driver. It was well-funded. He had a lot of experience. He worked well with Adrian Newey. Um, he got a couple of fourth places, I recall, a few points. Um, then they recruited Mark Webber to go alongside him, and it wasn't really a surprise um, to ultimately that he would he'd blow DC away, which he proceeded to do as the, the younger, hungrier, faster driver. 
Um, but yeah, I did a, a pretty solid job and uh, the, the team was improving. Yeah, I mean, you know, when you think of what he came from with McLaren um, and his experience and expertise, he, he brought a lot to that team in the early stages as well. So he could, he could, uh, he could feel very motivated because he was, you know, he was the man coming into this team to give it direction and sort itself out. So he was probably at as big a high in his career at that point as anywhere just from the fact that he was, you know, the pressure was on his shoulders. He'd never really been a number one at any of the other teams he'd been at. So he, he had this opportunity now to, to show his true, uh, his true skill level. And more in, in driving the team, you know, getting them a direction to go in. Because the Jaguar thing, I mean, I was involved in it at the beginning. And all of that was just a disaster as far as the, the relationship with Ford. There was never any consistency. There was never any, you know, nobody had any motivation and that went through even after my time. You know, you could see it still there. It was just everybody was looking at their back, waiting for the knife to get stuck between the shoulder blades, because that's what was going to happen. It was just constant. So this was a new, a new team, a new opportunity. And for David, it was a you know he, he was let loose to, to bring his expertise to this team and, and give it a, a direction, give it a grounding, and, and get the stability into it. And I think he worked very well at that. And again, as Mark says, you know, Christian Klein and. Antonio Liuzzi, um, you know, they weren't going to be next year's world champions, I don't think. Um, so he, ha he had the handle over them, but when Weber came along and was willing to wring its neck a few times, then I think that changed the sort of attitude a little bit, and the team then started to follow along, obviously, with somebody that they could see might just pop up being a race winner. Ansi Rulamo asks a question about one of my favourite F1 qualifying sessions of all time, because I'm a massive Jacques Villeneuve fan. Ansi says, I've always been fascinated by the 1997 Australian Grand Prix qualifying. How was it possible that Villeneuve was 1.7 seconds faster than second place Frentzen? So Frentzen was in the other Williams making his debut for the team. Mark, Villeneuve, I was thought, was quite good round Albert Park, but to be 1.7 seconds faster than Frentzen and more than two seconds faster than the next car, what on earth was going on that day in Australia? Yeah, I mean, that car was a pretty sensational car, as, as was a 96 car, but it required a very aggressive approach to get the best from it. Um, Frentzen arrived there from Sauber. Was, he wasn't quite, just not quite ready for that, I think, at those, that first race. Plus, JV's a pretty shrewd, Operator, I'm sure he he hadn't allowed his full hand to be sure, shown during winter testing. So they get to Melbourne, which is a pretty quick circuit hemmed in by walls, and it's all about confidence and using the curbs and the bumps very aggressively. And yeah, Villeneuve's confidence in the car was extreme. He did a fantastic job. Um, the gap was a little bit exaggerated by Frenson's best lap being thwarted by a red flag, so he had to go out again with the, for the last two minute dash at the end, and it wasn't really an optimized lap. Um, so although there wasn't really as much as 1.7 seconds slower that the stopwatch said, realistically, he was probably still about a second slower. So, But once we got to more conventional tracks, their, perform their performance um, converged a bit more. Though JV stayed in command, he, was, he just did a better job that year. Yeah, you also find, I think, that you know, if, he, if the car just hooks up, suddenly you can, it, it's so much, can be so much quicker, so much better. You, you get this point where basically you're driving around... Um, as a, as a driver that's been there before, you're driving around, you're driving the racing lines that you always drove, you know, you're, you're not experimenting, you're not looking at it deeply enough um, and trying to experiment with this new track. And you get places like Albert Park or Monaco um, where, you know, the track 
every year you go, the track is a bit different. It's had, like Monaco, for example, it's had different traffic around it. It's got a different sort of diesel content spilled on the surface. It's, it's a completely different track. So you have to attack it like a new track. And Albert Park is a bit like that as well. If you attack it like a new track every year, you end up finding those little points that have changed over the, over the, the, the time off, basically. And I think whenever Villeneuve, you know, coming into this, he got on the gas pedal and, and did it correctly because he experimented with it as a new track and found all those little bits that were basically, you know, advantageous. That I've always I've criticised a lot of drivers through time that I worked with. You can't just drive over that curb the same as you did last year. You're in a different car. It may have different, completely different mega tire on it or even different construction tires on it. The curb could be different. You know, the whole environment has changed. You have to attack every corner, every track, like it's a new track and experiment with it again and see how your car fits into it. And I think Villeneuve probably did that better than Frensen at that point in time. Um, Frensen was, you know, was still driving uh, more like he would have driven before. But, you know, you take, never mind Frensen, you know, okay, he was in the Williams, but Michael Schumacher, who was no slouch in his time, was 2.1 seconds slower than that. So... You know, a massive, massive difference. And I think Villeneuve just got the car hooked up to that track and, and, and dragged everything out of the track that he could, never mind the car. Yeah, that lap didn't do uh, his old teammate Damon Hill any favours either. I seem to remember Damon having to wring the neck of his arrows just to get inside 107%. Uh, the next question uh, is from the 9-8 podcast. Uh, and it's about Martin Brundle uh, going from driver to pundit, which he did in 1997. I'll come to you first on this, Mark, because you've spent a lot of time in commentary boxes with Martin on Grand Prix weekends. How how would you assess the way Martin goes about his role as an analyst and a commentator? I think he's the best in the business at that. Um, and he's um, he came in at a very high level immediately as well. He was just a natural, um, incisive, intelligent, able to speak with the authority of years in Formula One. He desperately wanted to stay in the game as a driver, and even today, I think he still longs to be in there as a driver. But the offers dried up after 13 very distinguished years, and he was replaced at Jordan by Fisichella, much to his surprise, actually. He'd been led to understand something else. Um, so he was a natural for the role, and he, he made it his own, um, and uh, continues to do so. So, yeah, not really much more to say. Gary, you obviously, uh, well, Martin's last F1 drive was in one of your cars in Jordan in 1996. And as Mark mentioned there, Martin tested some other cars in 97 and did give some quotes around a time that I think he tested a Benetton because he didn't have any drivers available, saying he was still keen to get back in. But what did you make of Martin's final season as a driver, having seen it so up close? Um, well, first of all, I think Martin probably still takes his helmet and boots with him to a Grand Prix just to, to do the punditry, just in case somebody calls him up, because he would love to be back in one of the cars. Um, and he obviously does drive a bit still with sports cars, and he's done a few uh, demonstrations with F1 cars. So he, he hangs on to that need and that want to drive a car. But 96, again, and I've said this too many times over this podcast, um, wasn't our best car in the world. Uh, we had gone from Brian Hart's engine in 94 to the Peugeot engine in 95 that, that, that McLaren didn't really want, to be honest. Um, and still in, in 96, we were still trying to get on top of the engine and get some reliability into it. Um, you know, he was up against Rubens uh, Barrichello, who was now in his, what, third year? Uh, 93, 94, 95, yeah, third year. So Rubens was 
getting to be a pretty good little peddler. Um, he was very, very good from the beginning, but you know, he was starting to understand Formula One a little bit more. And I, I think Martin, uh, you know, again, it was the same thing. He, he was like he is now. He felt that uh, he maybe should have been driving for a better team, you know, a, a bigger team, let's say, not necessarily better. So I don't think I ever felt that he was really in our team. You know, he was, he was there. He was there for the good of his future career, whereas Rubens was there for the, the good of his future career. Rubens was very happy to go out and wring his neck um, and, and do the best job he could in a car that he knew wasn't you know, the best in the world. But he was still so enthusiastic about it, and I never felt that with Martin. And I'm sure it gets to you, and it always does if you're you know, sort of semi-sliding down the scale, and as he did retire at the end of 96. Um, you know, it, it's a time whenever you've got to make big decisions in, in life. And obviously the, the big shunt he had at the beginning of the season in Aust Australia, it was a pretty impressive accident. And, um, you know, he, he just, he got he got out of the car and he ran back to get into the spare car, got in the spare car, but then he just didn't, you know, he knew himself that he was a little bit cloudy between the ears. So he needed to stop and, and just let it all settle down a little bit. But I don't know, during the year... I, I probably would like to have seen more out of him as far as joining the club of driving for Jordan um, as, a, as opposed to, you know, just not, not sure where he was going to in the future. He, I think he really did feel he needed to be with a bigger team. And he'd been through the McLaren era at that point in time. So he had had the opportunity with what was a big team and it hadn't really worked. So now he was, you know, he was on that slide basically with the Ligier and the, and the Jordan, that sort of thing that you know that's, you're going the wrong direction, to be honest. And he, I don't think he wanted to take that in. But he's done a very good job on the, on the punditry. Um, you know, there's, there's good guys out there doing lots and lots of stuff, but Martin's not frightened to, to say it as it is, which is obviously very true. Um, it, it's, it's not everybody that does it that way, uh, but it's just, it is the facts, and that's what we want to hear. Yeah, I think Brundle probably raised the bar in the late 90s, and a lot of the... The good punditry that we have today is probably a legacy of people realising the level you need to get to. We've got a couple of questions next that are about the the rise of Renault in the early 2000s. So I'll bolt them together. George O'Donnell uh, says he'd like to hear about Renault's 2004 season, where obviously Yano Trulli won the Monaco Grand Prix, then gets fired, and how the team built success ahead of winning the 05 and 06 championships back-to-back. -back. And Jonathan Patty, who we've already heard from, had an interesting question uh, which I think we'll give to you, Gary, which he wants to hear more about the Renault 110-degree V10 that it ran early in the 2000s. Gary, you'd have still been designing cars when that engine was on the grid. Do you remember hearing much about it, and were you particularly intrigued or impressed by it? Um, yeah, we heard a lot about it, obviously. Um, the end result was, um, I think, they, they, suffered, they suffered with stiffness, both uh, for the engine itself, for the car, but an, you know, an engine internally needs to be stiff for its own right as well, because anything that's moving around will basically take more friction. So the the engine suffered a bit because of it. the 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 right call was made. I mean, it was, it was something that was better because you could get the the sort of side pod shape changed differently, and the back of the fuel tank area because of the engine being lower as such, because you're getting the heads down a bit. The center of gravity was going down with it. But I think they had to add quite a lot of stuff onto the top of the engine to actually um, stiffen up the bending, get the bending stiffness back into the car. That um, they, you know, that they sort of lost the advantage of all that lower centre of gravity. 
would it have been the right thing for the future? You know, there's probably a good chance that it's something that you could have kept on going with and, and optimized and, and got better with. I've been through the, the eras of, um, you know, V8s, V10s, V12s, flat 12s, the Brabham days way back. And, you know, everything had its compromise. So I don't think there's any, any easy route. Um, but, you know, they took their, they took their chance and, and designed something completely new. And, and the, the objectives were correct. But I don't think it had enough time to carry to carry on and actually optimize everything. Mark probably knows a little bit more of the detail than me, to be honest. Um, but it's one of those things where I think that you know there's nothing wrong with doing it. You just have to keep going for a while though to make sure you op uh, optimize it as best possible. Yeah, it was um, it was as you say um, different to what was intended because they ended up having to add so much weight to it to um, to keep it stiff enough. Um, and it also they had to reduce the revs. It, it never it never um, was able to rev to its intended design um, spec. So the vibrations of that V angle and cylinder combination as well it was it was made it very uh, very lumpy. Very had a lot of um, vibrations. So it ended up being about a hundred horsepower down on the top engines, and that's why it had such a disastrous 2001. But actually the the limitations of the engine led the team down a development path that proved quite fruitful because because of the revs restriction, they developed the engine instead to have the biggest, fattest torque curve possible, which gave it great low-speed drivability and good fuel economy. Um, and the extra weight of having to beef it up, um, I think it was running something like 110, 115 kilos. Well, some of the best ones were down to 90 kilos. It gave it a very rearwards, gave the car a rearwards weight distribution, which especially combined with the Michelin, give the car fantastic traction. So a drivable engine, fantastic traction, and a start line weight advantage because it didn't need as much fuel. Um, but that wasn't an enough to overcome the 100, being 100 horsepower down. But it did send the team on a, a route it probably otherwise might not have pursued. And it was a very fruitful one that eventually led to the 2005 and six titles. Um, along the way, the, the 2003 and four cars were great on traction-type tracks, hence Yano's um, pole and victory at Monaco in 04. Um, so that I think that the 110-degree engine was replaced by the more conventional, I think, 72-degree and then a 90-degree units from 2002 onwards. But it, it retained that rearward-biased weight distribution and a big, fat torque curve. And it was perfectly conceived for the Michelin tyres, which truly was fantastic at getting the ultimate lap from them. And Alonso was amazing at getting consistent speed lap after lap as the balance changed. Um, but truly ended up falling out with Flavio uh, Bertori and the relationship completely broke down before the end of the season. In fact, his last Grand Prix for the team, Italian Grand Prix, he did it, the whole thing on radio silence. He just refused to uh, have a conversation on the radio at all. So yeah, it was uh, it was finished by then, and he ended up the uh, finished that season at Toyota. Yeah, difficult difficult to know. As I say, the, the one thing they did learn through that period as well was the fact that they could build an engine that had very low heat rejection. So you didn't um, you didn't need the cooling on the car. So that suddenly the side pods and radiator inlets and radiator assemblies became smaller. So everything's a learning curve, you know. As you say, the the big fat torque curve. Um, and the fact that the heavier engine was not a good solution, so you have to look and, and compromise many, many things on the way to get it, you know, to get the weight down of everything. Um, but as I say, you, everything you do, you learn something, and, and that's the most important thing: being open-minded about it, so you can apply that to your next. 
concept thoughts, I suppose, is the best way of putting it. And you need to you need to do that all the time. I think that trajectory that Renault achieved in the early 2000s is probably what they thought they could replicate this time around with their team, and they've fallen quite far short of it so far. This next question is going to be fun. Alex Wiley and uh, only one or one only David have both asked about Benetton in 1994. Did they have traction control? Uh, Gary, you were there. I'll try not to get you sued. Did you? Were you one of the people maybe on the side in the paddock that did have suspicions about Benetton or did you just not bother yourself with such concerns? Well, you know, you've always got to try to raise the alarm with the FIA if you can. So you were keeping an eye closely at, at what the car sounded like all the time. It's one of those sort of situations where I don't think anybody really had 100% belief in the fact that they had traction control. They may have had, you know, within their ECU as such, they may have had something that allowed them to have, bit, you know, some sort of traction control if they wanted it. I'd jump out here and say that most teams probably had that a facility somewhere in there that you could have played with a little bit if you wanted to. Um, be it just the torque curves even, just being, you know, making sure the throttle maps and torque curves all work together. There's, there's ways and ways of doing it, there are many ways of doing it, but actually having a traction control with feedback, um, you know, we, we did believe at that point in time that Benetton might be up to something. And as I say, we, we also made the FIA aware. But we have to rely on the big teams doing this sort of stuff. You know, we were a small team and we could get buried very, very easily if we were to complain too much about stuff. So, we, you know, that was a good season for us, 94. And, you know, we were, we were fighting with them on a few occasions. And um, it was one of those sort of situations where you could be disappointed because of it. And, you know, we had to make sure that the, as I say, the FIA were aware of the situation, how we thought about it, but allow the big teams to do the real shouting about it. And Mark, uh, Alex Wiley's uh, question also included uh, wanting to know a bit more about uh, traction control coming back in 2001, when it was essentially... The FIA just said, we can't police this. We might as well let you all have it. And was that just a case of the teams were becoming too clever for the FIA at that point? Yeah, it was always such a controversial area because trying to encapsulate it into regulation wording. So some took it as what was intentioned and others were working on trying to find a way that would maybe anticipate the wheel spin and reduce the torque, whereas technically, and argue that technically that wasn't traction control because traction control would react wheel spin, whereas this was anticipating it. But you're talking about the difference of milliseconds, you know, so that nebulous area created the ambiguity that breeds controversy. We, we don't definitively know what Benetton were doing in 94, only that the software was there to facilitate launch control. Um, but this extreme difficulty of regulating it meant the FAA give up on trying to police it in 2001. But it was noticeable that um, from Spain, where, where the um, the new regulation came in, where it was uh, they weren't policing it anymore, um, it, there was no noticeable difference in the competitive order. And um, so it, it was probably a bigger fuss being made about it than the reality um, of what was actually going on. And uh, eventually the policing problem, of course, was solved with the standardized ECU. I think it's I think it's interesting to go back to to as say the early 2000s. I remember standing at uh, turn 3 in Barcelona and watching Michael Schumacher with the Ferrari and 
going through there with traction control on and listening to the engine and going through there without it on because the engine didn't have the cutting but it had the throttle change. At that time, you couldn't go through turn three flat out. Um, and I, I was timing because I always liked to go out in the circuit and watch. And he was actually quicker without it, to be honest, you know, because, uh, you know, he could, he could you, wanted the, you want the traction to be braking just to help steer the car to a certain extent. So traction control, you know, at its, at its point in time, is always very very difficult to to get the you know to get 99.9999% of the traction available out of the car but a good driver can and i think you see that in MotoGP quite a lot you know whenever they had traction control they the bikes basically you know some riders couldn't ride with it because it just cut the bike too much and they have to slide the bike a little bit you know that's an exaggeration of what happens in formula 1 but the same thing has to happen you have to get the traction broken to allow it to happen and, you know, going back, you were talking about Fisichella a bit earlier. You know, when we had uh, traction control, him and, and Takuma Sato, Takuma would just get to the apex of the corner whenever he wanted to put the throttle back and then just 100% immediately and allow the traction control to work. Whereas Fizzy wouldn't. He would, he would play with the throttle on top of the traction control and both of them would get really confused because the traction control, you know, was, was trying to react to it. Fizzy was reacting to it as well. So... As I say, both of them were getting confused with it, and it was so hard to get his car set up relative to to to, uh, to Sata's car, because Fizzy knew he could do it better himself in reality, but he never was it was willing to mentally just bang the throttle down and let it happen. He didn't drive that way. He came from the old school of of uh, you know controlling the throttle himself. So very difficult whenever you had traction control to get the best out of the car as well. Next question's for you, Gary. Uh, Damien Stack says, it would be interesting to hear about the independent manufacturers like Hart. So we'll focus on Hart because one of Brian Hart's engines was in the back of one of your Jordans for a while. How did working with an independent manufacturer like Hart compare to working with the big factory manufacturers, which, of course, are the only engine suppliers we have in F1 now? Well, I suppose our, our era of, of Formula One at Jordan was uh, 1991 was Cosworth. 92 was Yamaha. Cosworth, obviously, based in Northampton. Um, Yamaha um, in Milton Keynes and in Japan. And um, and then Brian Hart in 93. And basically, we had such a dismal year in, in 93, and uh, 92 with the, uh, with the Yamaha. I went to Brian to see if we could get him and Yamaha to sort of join up. And uh, he had a V10 engine that was built, that was a very prototype at the time. Um, and, you know, I thought, well, putting a Yamaha cam cover on that would, would be a, you know, a good thing to do. But it, it, it couldn't happen. We got them together a few times for meetings. But, um, you know, Brian was very confident that their V12 was not the way to go, uh, that his V10 would have been a much better solution. And at the end of the day, um, Yamaha went with, uh, with John Judd and the V10 that he had built. Uh, and Brian and us went our own way. But it was like a light switch, you know, going to speak to Brian about stuff. He just he just knew things. I mean, obviously it could be very different because I was I was dealing with the Japanese before that. But just Brian's engine, you know, it was a prototype stage engine. There was pipes hanging off everywhere on the dyno. But you know, he's in there in the dyno room firing it up and you know running the throttle and doing all sorts of stuff. And so you just felt that this guy, you know, he was on top of it all. And obviously from his past, you knew that he had he was a hands-on bloke. Um, so the experience of working with him in 93 and 94 
were absolutely fantastic. I mean, I've got a V10 crankshaft from one of the 94 engines in my display cabinet over there with a little plaque on each piston for all our fourth positions, which I think we had eight of them or something. Um, so, you know, he, he's just a really, really nice guy. He was a very good friend of mine, you know, all the way through his life, to be honest. Um, you know, I miss him to this day, to be honest. He's, he's just such a nice bloke. But then going from Brian to to uh, Peugeot for 1995. Again, you know, Brian was a small team. Brian was a man that mattered. If you wanted something done, you phoned Brian and said, Brian, could you lower the crankshaft by 20 millimeters, you know, get center of gravity of the engine down a bit? Yeah, I think we can do. You know, phone Peugeot and say, could you lower the crankshaft by 20 millimeters? Get, oh, we'll have to have a meeting, you know, we'll have to have a... And that six months time, they would have had 25 meetings and they'd turn around and say, no, we can't. Um, so just a whole different world. They had huge, you know, Peugeot, they had a big, big budget relative to what we had with Brian. I think we had uh, like three million with Brian's engines for the year. Peugeot had a, an, uh, an estimated budget at that time, I think about 25 million. And they had a huge amount of people, a huge amount of resource, but they just didn't have any one person that was really hands-on, that was, you know, that knew the whole thing. It was, it was, you know, it was all different departments researching this and researching that. And just getting little things done was an absolute nightmare. I mean, it's sort of one of the things that was my favorite at the beginning was the air valve system um, was hydraulic and it was getting oil into the air, air chambers for the valves and, and it was hydraulic and, and basically, you know, the engine would blow up. Um, and you just couldn't get them to understand that the, the camshafts were filling up with oil. It was just the, the camshafts weren't being scavenged properly. And it wasn't, they worked flat out on the air valve system to try and seal it. But the fundamental problem of them filling up the oil was still there. So once they just, I remember one of the guys <coughs> was quite ambitious and opening up the back of the heads and putting a dash, I think it was dash 10 or dash 12 air-equipped pipe from the back of the heads down to the, down to the scavenge pump to, allow it to scavenge the heads a bit. And the air valve problem went away miraculously. And that was at a, at a circuit, at our test meeting, whenever we just had had enough, basically. Everything was just going wrong, and you just needed to act to it. Brian would have acted to that immediately. So great to work with something like that. Next question is a good one from Sam Harper. And uh, Mark, you can take this one on. He says, uh, what caused Mika Hakkinen's 2001 season to be such a disaster? Um, I, I don't recall it as a disaster. It was a, He wasn't. Uh, contending for the title, so it was v very disappointing after the three years he'd just had, I guess, but um, yeah, he won Silverstone in Indianapolis, he should have won Barcelona, with the, he had the last lap um, engine problem um, he, he was still he was still uh, absolute front runner, uh, the, the, the engine wasn't as reliable, and the car probably wasn't as good relative to Ferrari as uh, the previous year, and plus the Williams BMW was coming on strong by 2001, so there was that as well. Um, but I think generally Mercedes had started to f in that that year had started to fall away a little bit in uh, comparison to Ferrari and BMW on the horsepower. Uh, but the car was still pretty good, and I think Mika was still, mm, you know, at or close to his best. Um, he certainly that race he. Uh, he won at Indianapolis was as impressive as any he'd, he'd ever he'd ever done. I did a test with Mika at uh, Brands Hatch for Reynard um, in 1989 when I was working on the Formula 3000 car for Reynard, and um, it was quite interesting because he was driving for Dragon Racing there, and they were having a bit of a hard time. But 
we, we started the test and run, 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 all doing things quite happily. And Mika was quick. He, um, he did a quick lap and come into the pits. And I saw one of the mechanics just, there was a, a, a floor stay, I suppose you might call it. And the bolt had come out of one of the stays on the, held the outside of the floor up. And the mechanic was putting this bolt back into the, into the floor stay. And I, um, and I made a mental note of this, you see, and he went back out again. We didn't do too much other changes to the car. Went back out again, and he was like three or four times slower. So um, no problem. Brought him back in again and said, what happened? He said, just got less grip. So took that bolt out again. Went back out again, three or four times quicker. So, oh, okay. Put that one in the back pocket for Saturday afternoon for, uh, for, for qualifying or whatever qualifying was. So we happened to leave the nut loose on, the, on that bolt for uh, the qualifying session and lo and behold it fell out again and um, it was on pole so that taught me something about drivers to be honest <clears throat> you know the feeling that you have to have to pick up that grip level increase just like a light switch is is quite incredible you know that's one of the things that Lewis Hamilton surprises me about these days he just seems to be able to pick up the track grip so well obviously and the car grip but when changing conditions whenever it's you know, moisty or damp, Lewis is always very good at picking that up. And I think Mika was, was just exactly the same. You know, he could, he could pick up the grip. That, that one little change on the floor, cha altered, he could just pick that up like a light switch and suddenly use it. So um, that taught me to make sure that you did everything you could to, to make sure the car was, you know, they had the opportunity as best possible whenever the car was at its, at its peak and uh, get on with it. And Mika was very good at that. It's an incredible story. Uh, before we wrap things up with our final question, uh, I've got one more engine question for you, Gary. An uh, MG5904, catchy name, uh, would like to hear more about Cosworth's efforts during the V10 era. Why were they not more successful? Was it horsepower, drivability, weight, packaging? Uh, your, um, your, Stuart, uh, your Stuarts and Jaguars uh, had Cosworth engines. Uh, what were they like at the time? Well, I mean, I have to say the, the first one, the 99 Stuart, that, uh, the first Cosworth I really got involved with, um, was a fantastic engine. I mean, it, it was light, uh, probably too light. It was less than 100 kilograms. And at that point in time, that was something that was, like, you know, unheard of. Um, it was probably, as I say, a little bit too light. It, it had some reliability problems. We had this... Um, heavy metal, like, you know, the denser metal, they call it, that's uh, got a, a specific gravity of something like 20 to 1, bolted onto the crank, it's crank weights. So the crank itself was like a, a wire coat hanger with these bits bolted onto it. And they didn't always stay there. They uh, end up sometimes coming through the side of the block and uh, into the grandstands. So little areas like that were a little bit, um, a little bit dubious. Great idea. Everybody's, you know, gone through the stages of, of copying that tr during that period. Cosworth were just very early at doing it. Um, and one of the big things that they did do as well was <clears throat> was apply CFD to the intake track of the engine. And I remember going over there one day and them showing me this CFD analysis they'd done on the intake track. And, you know, they were dubious about believing it all, but it, it, they had optimised it from CFD. And, and, you know, that's what say, uh, computer um, dynamics is good for doing. It's just the fact that they, they hadn't used it before, so they weren't quite sure. But they optimised the inlet track to it. And, and, you know, the engine produced good power at the beginning. It was light. Everything worked well. However, it did, it did suffer from reliability problems. So it's, again, like the Renault engine. You need to learn from all these things and have the, m the momentum and keep it going. But the year after, whenever I first 
team first became Jaguar, we actually had a reduction in power just because of reliability problems. They couldn't cope, and Ford, who owned Cosworth at that time, couldn't cope with this stuff happening, this blowing up all the time. So it was. I think they were very good at doing the job they were doing. Um, I think they were excellent. It's just one of those sort of situations where it had everything, and maybe a little bit too much of some. You know, as I say, the weight-wise, adding on five kilograms might have made the thing more bulletproof, lost a little bit of of, uh, of something, but it would have probably been a better engine overall. And we'll give the final question of the episode, and therefore the series, to Luke Bratley, who asks, which elements from the 89 to 05 era, if adopted today, could improve the current racing? Mark, can you think of anything that immediately comes to mind with a question like that? For me, the the tire wall would be the thing um, because it, it gave this volatility to um, the competitive um, state of play. Um, sometimes even within the same um, race, uh, according to what the weather was doing. And um, I think it was uh, taken away from Formula One on the grounds of cost because the, the teams were having to pay for all the, the engines and everything that to, to, to test the tires. Um, but I still believe it would have been possible if there'd been the will to do it, uh, to have a tyre wall with um, with the test restrictions. What about you, Gary? Is your answer just that, you know, Jordan should come back and you should design their cars? No, I should say bring back Nigel Mansell. Um, I mean, Nigel was one of these guys. I mean, you look at some of his races and, and wheel banging and whatever that goes on, um, you know, just absolutely fantastic. And we have drivers like that. The cars just at the moment are too sophisticated. They're too, they're too optimized around aerodynamics. All aerodynamic surfaces are working at you know, 99.99% their maximum efficiency. And whenever you get a little bit of turbulence, they just fall down. So we, need, we just need more aggressive cars. If that was in that period where the, the aerodynamics were less well understood, um, then you'd, you'd get back there very quickly, I think. You just can't... You just can't you lose so much downforce. Now, we, we see currently that basically the, the top cars are the ones that suffer most, to be honest, because they're the ones that have most research. They're the ones that every surface is working so hard and doing such a big, a good job that a little bit of turbulence just let, makes that surface fall over. But, um, yeah, I mean, the, the era then, the cars were a bit more um, um, robust, I suppose, aerodynamically, and they had more downforce from underneath the floor. Uh, up to the mid-90s before the Senna accident. You know, they had a better diffuser, still flat-bottomed in some, some of that era, but, but a better diffuser, more, more underneath downforce. But it was just more robust downforce. So I don't think you, should go, you can go back in, in time. You have to go forward in time. But we need, so we need to create a set of regulations for the cars that will allow the cars to have more robust aerodynamic surfaces. And it's about trying to achieve something that will do that. Yeah, I think you mentioned at the top of the show as well, Gary, the, the, you know, the sophistication and the level of understanding of the teams. I think if we could, and this is, this is literally impossible, if we could go back some way to the teams not understanding every tiny detail and the amount of detail they do now, just we'd have more variables. You know, you talked about this, this simplicity of teams, the way they were made up even in the early 90s. That meant that you couldn't be across everything. You didn't have the data. You didn't have the people to mine through that data in the way you do now. You know, F1 has definitely lost something for me through the the loss of variables. You know, the engine, the level of engineering is is effectively too good now, and I don't quite see how we ever get back to that. So yeah, let's put Nigel Mansell back on the grid. Uh, let's get Adrian Newey to design a Williams and 
for me, Jacques Villeneuve can be his teammate and then everything will be right with the world again. That seems like a good place to end Series 1 of Bring Back V10s. It's been a lot of fun looking back at one of F1's most popular eras over the last 11 weeks. That's 11 episodes in the bag. We've been overwhelmed by the response that we've had from you all while we've been doing this. And because of that, I can assure you that we'll be back soon with a second series. Make sure you follow at We Are The Race on social media for updates on when that will be released. And if you haven't listened to all of the previous 10 episodes, then have a look back through our uh, back catalogue and uh, we can keep you entertained for a little bit longer. You can still get plenty more of our regular podcast from the race. Edge Draw hosts our regular Formula One show, which Mark will appear on pretty much every week. Gary has his own show, the Gary Anderson F1 show, which is released every Wednesday. And we also have MotoGP, Formula E and eSports podcasts. We'll do our best to make sure Bring Back V10s doesn't lay silent for too long. And thank you to so much to everyone who has listened to the show and got in touch with us. And make sure you tell your friends what they've been missing out on. You know, these episodes won't go out of date, so let's uh, let's spread them around and make sure as many people find them as possible. Keep your questions and episode suggestions coming in using the hashtag BringBackV10s, and we'll see you very soon. 